Welcome to the first episode of Suede. My name is Sarah Osteen. I am really excited to launch this podcast. This is a this is intended to be a discussion about people's experiences and perspectives with influence and power. And today I have my first guest, who is Dr. Robert Osteen. He's a retired surgical oncologist with the Brigham Women's Hospital and continues to teach Harvard medical students. And he is also my dad. So I am pleased that he's willing to be uh, my first guinea pig. And I'm, I'm excited to have a dynamic discussion with him. So uh, I, I wanted to start off today by having some discussion around how you build trust with patients and what it looks like to help influence patients to make the best health decisions for themselves. So I'll turn it over to you. Well, you're, you're framing it in terms of uh, power perspective is, is, is actually kind of interesting. The relationship of doctor and patient has a power dynamic built into it. And the patient is coming for help, and the doctor is hopefully trying, going to do that. The, the dynamics of that relationship are particularly peculiar in, in my specialty, namely oncology, where the, the patient's coming with a disease that, uh, that they're really frightened about, that, that carries, uh, carries a lot of, um, lot of concern, a lot of realistic concern about, uh, about their survival. And so the uh, dynamic of decision making and discussions are, are are tainted by that by that inevitable power relationship. I always felt that 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 part of the part of the problem was to empower the patient to to be comfortable with the relationship and to have as much control over that relationship as as is possible. So that you ask about gaining trust, well, part of the gaining trust is is having the patient uh, as much in control of the situation as um, as possible. Right. That's done a number of ways. One of the one of the ways is is this is just the setting in which it takes place. Patients who are. Uh, who are wearing a Johnny that's open in the back, and they're sitting on a on a, a cold sh- a sheet on a table are not uh, are not in control. Yeah. They're they're the subject, and uh, I I always uh, insisted that the conversations with the patient take place when they were f- fully clothed and in a uh, more congenial setting than than the, uh, than an examining room. Uh, early on in my career, I read a, an article about um, about uh, children with cancer and their patients at Children's Hospital in Boston, and the subjects were children and their families who had gone through the experience of the child having cancer many years before, usually twenty to thirty years before, and had survived it, and the. Children had uh, had been through hell. They had been through surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, and so forth. And one of the questions that was asked of them was, "What do you remember about the the experience?" And every single one of them cited the room in which they had been told the diagnosis. And that said to me that the setting in which these conversations take place is really important. 
So I structured my office to to have it as look as much like a a homey setting as possible. I had a little uh, two person couch in which the uh, the patient and a family member could sit and hold hands or at least be close together, and uh, all of the furniture in the office was was firm and meant that the patient could get in and out of the chair without struggling. Uh, there was a little coffee table, a in table with a regular looking lamp on it. And then I sat at a desk, not behind the desk, but could swivel around and talk to the family in a, in a circle uh, in which we were all equal. And I was equal height with a chair that wasn't a high-backed judge's chair, but was a low chair so that we were we were as close to equal as we could be just to to have the the setting as comfortable as possible for the patient then the the aspects of of talking to the patients or of or of conveying the information and and getting getting buy in from the patient or getting uh, agreement or informed consent if you will uh, had to has to do with with the patient uh, trusting you uh, and trusting what you're saying. Again, that's a complicated problem. We all have the problem of dealing with people who are telling us things or who are making recommendations to us or who are trying to provide services to us in which we don't know nearly as much about the subject as the as the provider does. I mean, my electrician, I, I don't know, you know nearly w- as much about being an electrician as he does. So he has to, he has to tell, it, tell me what he's proposing in terms that I can understand, in terms that make sense with my other experience. And that's if, if he doesn't convey that information in a way that I can understand, then I don't really trust him. I don't know what he's telling me. I'm not. Uh, I'm. I'm on guard about it. So, these medical problems are complicated. Often the choices are complicated, but they have to be given to the patient or told to the patient in a way that they can understand. That problem is uh, is is not easy because the the topic isn't somebody something that the patient was really eager to learn about in the first place. They would just as soon deny the whole thing. And um, it's a little hard to uh, to get across the information. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself having to give critical information or, you know, serious diagnosis over the phone? Uh, I would avoid that like the plague. Yeah. Um, there's really no, no excuse for that. The... What you try to do is to avoid surprise. People hate surprises, particularly when the surprises aren't uh, uh, aren't good news. Right. So, uh, I, 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 to the best of my knowledge, I never gave anyone any bad news over the phone. But oh, wow. to avoid surprise, you try to uh, you try to. Uh, not hang crepe exactly, but at least to to prepare the patient for the possibility of bad news. Uh, I would frame it in things like uh, with a biopsy, if if the biopsy uh, looked bad to me and just grossly, I would tell the patient, I'd say after the procedure, I'd say that, you know, I'm worried about it. I would usually frame it in those terms that the pathologist had to look at it, but that I was worried about what it might be. 
And then when uh, when the pathology came back as being a cancer, then the conversation, which would take place in person, not over the phone, was, uh, well, you know, I was worried about this. And indeed, that's what it turned out to be. Right, right. So there might be some heads up that you give them. Um, do you start, even when you're at the worried phase, do you start to share some of the options going forward? Or is that sort of based on how, you know, the tolerance of the, of the patient? Yeah, usually not. Mm-hmm. The I think information overload is is a problem, and one of the one of the ways that you gain confidence from patients is not giving them information that turns out to be wrong or that you have to walk back or that you have to retract in some way. Right. So to avoid that, uh, you try to do and try to say things only when you've got the degree of proof that you want. Yeah, so this kind of leads us into this conversation around some techniques to to build trust, even with this inherent power dynamic that there's not much you can, you know, that, that exists. Uh, what are some techniques that you found were useful in terms of helping to, to build some initial trust with the patient? Uh, I think the number of things that you do, as I, one of them is, that I just said that you try not to have to uh, backtrack on anything that you've told people. Right. I think people detect honesty. Um, that if you don't know something, it's perfectly okay to say, "I don't know the answer to that," but here's how we're going to find out about it. People tolerate that fairly well, and it and it looks like an and and is an honest answer. During the initial conversations with patients, that is before you commit to a to a course of action, you develop trust in part by trying to put the patient in control. As I said earlier, one of the, one of the things that you do is develop a degree of empathy with them, and that comes largely just from listening. One of the things that I always did to initiate a conversation with the patient was to say, how can I help you? Well, I usually knew vaguely what, uh, why they were there, but by making the initial opening gambit as broad as possible, it allows the patient to say what's bothering them, often to say the symptoms that needed to be uh, addressed regardless of whether you could cure the cancer or not, but simply what symptoms could you did you need to deal with. And then once the patient had, has dis- had discussed that enough to directly address their, their symptom, that is, if they told you that, that something was bothering them as the first thing they said about, about the situation, then then you you had something to work with. You had you had something. Well, here's what we can do about that. Here's how here's how that problem is going to get solved. And uh, again, that that develops uh, trust. Once uh, the uh, uh, roughly a course of action has been decided on, then making predictions is um, is a way to gain trust. Making predictions that uh, about what's going to happen. Oftentimes, you can even do that during the during the initial conversation. That 
once somebody said uh, a little bit about what their symptoms are, any skilled doctor can predict what other symptoms that person is going to have. So if you can predict what other symptoms they they might have experienced, then uh, then they look at you as uh, as knowing something, and as a person who as a doctor who's able to make predictions that are actually that actually are true. I sort of think of it as the the shaman function of of medicine. Right. That since time immemorial, one of the one of the functions of the medicine man was to make predictions about uh, what was going to happen. And usually, if those predictions are vague enough, it almost doesn't matter what the prediction is because it will come true. But with medicine, you at least have the have some science behind you, and you have the ability to make predictions about what's going to happen, and they can be at a fairly low level at least initially, and if, uh, if your predictions are correct, then the patient gains, uh, generally gains confidence in what you're telling them. Right, and so that it's almost as if you, you're very tuned in to their experience and it feels very personal to them. Right, right. Um, so you had mentioned this concept of information overload. How do you read people in terms of their interest and tolerance for new information. And that that also represents the fact that most patients are often coming to your office with a family member or a loved one. So how do you manage, you know, interest in having enough information as well as these having these two people in the room who are there to learn? Right. Well, there's a broad spectrum of of what people bring to the initial conversation. There are patients who are who are hopelessly confused, um, and you sense that it's going to be impossible to sort it out. They're really difficult to deal with because uh, you just don't have a basis for conversation. Then there's some patients who are who are so eager to deny what's going on that they won't engage in a conversation, and again, they're pretty much impossible to deal with, and and you have to do it through a family member, and often from with multiple contacts. And what is that? They're they're denying the diagnosis, or they're or they're just downplaying. No, they they simply don't want to engage. Okay. I had a patient from uh, from Haiti who uh, who had a terrible rectal cancer problem and um, needed to have the, needed to have it removed and have a permanent colostomy and he simply wouldn't talk about it he, he wouldn't I told him what needed to be done but he simply wouldn't talk about it so I I, uh, I said, well, let's not talk about it. Um, why don't you come back in a week or two weeks, whatever it was? And he came back, and and uh, I didn't say anything to him. I just sat down beside him, and we sat there for about fifteen minutes without saying anything. And so I said, well, let's let's meet again in two weeks. And he came back, and and at that point, he said, well, you know, I think that tell me some more about this. So it it took. It took a uh, a long time of just saying that I wasn't going to give up on him right. uh, by saying nothing. That um, that that 
that gained his, uh, his confidence and his willingness to engage with it. But then there, then there are the people who come having looked things up on the internet and who have talked to other people, and they're easy to deal with because they already know something. And, and so just getting across the, the correct data, the correct information, disabusing them of, of fantasy and incorrect data that is all you have to do. With the previous example, it's, it's so hard because there's also probably cultural issues there that, that you're not familiar with. And all you can do is, like you said, give this person the space to kind of come around and demonstrate that you're there to support them. And, but it's without knowing exactly what's going through this person's mind or the experiences that they have had up to that point, it's, it's very hard to communicate. <laughs> Right, it's very, it is very hard, and and you're absolutely right. The cultural issues are loom very large. You realize what a heterogeneous society the United States is when you when you deal with uh, with life and death is- issues with patients, because different cultures view all sorts of aspects of it in different ways, and that just the words that you use, the uh, the intonation of your voice, and so on. The cultural issues are huge. Um, they're not just linguistic. That is, they're not just uh, people from other countries, but Americans with different backgrounds. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, growing up, I remember you talking about the difference between doctors who guide patients very closely, provide sort of that hand-holding where they're suggesting uh, an, an, the next step each each. Uh, you know, as they go along versus a more open approach, which I think is perhaps your style, where you provide more detailed information about each option and, and allow the patient to have some choice. Why is that that style better for you? Well, I'm not sure I, I, I know how to answer that one. The I think that many of the doctors of the current generation are data-driven. It's only been relatively recently, that is the last 40 years or so, that we could actually do some things for problems that we really couldn't do much about it before. And if you can't do much about it, then hand-holding is a great uh, substitute for doing something effective. But when you can do something effective, then it's a slightly different, different matter doesn't mean that the doctors are less sympathetic or that, that they're not aware of the emotional impact of things, mm-hmm. but rather that, uh, um, that there are effective treatments and that you don't want people to avoid doing something that, that might be beneficial to them because they're frightened or because they're, they're scared or what have you. It seems as though if you allow the patient to have more choice, they perhaps will buy into the option with more vigor uh, versus just kind of going along with what they've been told to do. To a degree. Many people uh, are uncomfortable with, with choice. And so doctors are doctors are data driven. Doctors are um, relying heavily on on data to say that the two options are have equivalent outcomes, or they may have slightly different 
outcomes, one slightly better than the other or somewhat better than the other, but with fewer side effects, fewer fewer problems associated with the treatment. So if the patients have, or many patients have great difficulty making choices in either one of those circumstances, that is, in the circumstance where they're, where they're equivalent, where the outcomes are equivalent, then the choices made on the, have to be made on non-scientific, for non-scientific reasons. Uh, for instance, the, the results of treating breast cancers with minimal surgery and radiation is exactly the same as it is with mastectomy under many circumstances. And when those circumstances obtain and the chances of curing it are equal, then the patient has to make a choice as to which, which of those they want to, want to do. And it never made any difference to me which they chose uh, because the outcomes were the same. Now, the cosmetic outcomes are different. The, the side effects are different. And so part of the problem when dealing with the patient was to get them to focus on, you know, which side effects did they want to avoid or which, uh, which uh, benefits did they want to maximize. When that was the choice, patient, it was very hard to get patients to, to deal with the idea, well, okay, what happens if the cancer spreads? Suppose, I've, suppose I choose one of the two options, and regardless of which is done, the cancer spreads. Would I feel guilty if I didn't do, if I had not had the maximum surgery? And there are patients who think that they will feel guilty if they haven't had a mastectomy, if they haven't had the maximum amount of surgery, even though the data don't support that one treatment is better than the other. Right. So getting somebody to focus on how much guilt will you have if an adverse outcome happens, that's a really complicated thing to do, and most people can't do it very well. It also sort of begs the question of what does guilt mean? Does guilt mean that you will, you know, go through the end of life feeling angry or uh, that, that there will be some kind of regret or like, yeah. what is, yeah. All of the above. Right. <laughs> All of the above. Right. I, what would be ideal would be to have somebody who, who when they recurred, said, "Well, you know, I had a, I had a choice, and I understand that this probably would have happened regardless of which I'd chosen, and so let's get on with it." That's what you, that's what you'd like to have, but it doesn't always work that way. Some people, you know, have buyer's remorse, if you will, about the mm-hmm. choice that was made. Yeah, and there, there's not much that you can do to to influence that it sounds like well i think you can i always took it as my main job to make sure that they really genuinely understood that the treatments were equivalent so the more information you can provide around yeah, that right. might alleviate some of that um this is fascinating i i uh since we're going towards the end of the time i want to just shift the conversation slightly towards uh, to get your perspective on some of the challenges that doctors and particularly surgeons face in terms of influencing hospital policy. So we, you know, we tend to think of you know, doctors sort of operating in their own bubble, but the reality is they are part of this 
larger uh, organization. And so uh, how did you see your role in terms of influencing changes within the hospital? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, while primary care physicians and and many internists can can operate uh, or function almost totally outside of the hospital realm, the, doc- the surgeons are really based in the hospital and they're inexorably tied to the to the hospital. So it's a it's a cooperative arrangement. It it can't be a it's not a competitive arrangement. They have to have to work together. I don't I don't know much about hospital administration. I know enough to know that doctors and administrators make decisions slightly differently. That is, doctors try awfully hard to make uh, to make data driven decisions and to recognize when when there's no data on the on the point. Administrators, people in the business world, have considerably less data to to operate with. There are essentially no randomized trials in which the variables are isolated and you you come out with uh, believable, statistically provable data. So there's often a a point of frustration because hospital administrators and doctors are talking about different things or they're they're using they're trying to make decisions in ways that the other group doesn't understand so i i had some role in managing the operating rooms and i always tried to find out how i could help the hospital administrators make their decisions that is how would what were they going to use for this kind for data what would what were they going to base decisions on what did they need how could i provide that that data for them in some way. The hospital administrators are, are primarily worried about the about the finances of the hospital. They're worried about keeping it keeping it afloat, keeping it going. And it's a very peculiar system from a from a business standpoint. That is, um, if you if you look at pricing things like bandages, so you can figure out what your total costs are for bandages in a year or what the total utilization of cases of bandages are. You can figure that patients on the internal medicine service didn't use any bandages so that you know how many surgical procedures or surgical patients there were. And you can uh, divide the costs of the bandages by the number of patients and come out with a bandage cost per surgical patient. And that's all, that's all fairly straightforward and, and easy to do. Uh, the problem comes with, with the fact that billing is done on a per patient basis rather than on the basis of total costs for, the, for, for bandages. So that if you uh, an, an individual surgical patient might not might have no bandages, and yet the hospital has to assign a cost of I don't know thousand dollars for bandages because they don't have a way to figure out how whether that patient had bandages or not. You can't you can't submit a chit for every single every single thing that's done uh, to patients in the hospital. 
consequently, the hospital administrators have often have very little grasp of what costs are for procedures or costs are for individual patients. They don't really have a system that will capture it just because there's so many components in that system. So if the doctors can help them make a decision, make find out, you know, how are we going to go about deciding whether to add an operating room, whether to to stock a certain material or not, uh, then that's the way I went about interacting with hospital administrators. Did you ever try and uh, involve other people in the planning or the proposal development so that you had some credit, you know, some other credible source in, incorporated, or is that not really? Well, you can use data from other hospitals, but they yeah. usually know better than the data you've got yourself. Right. So here's an anecdote. I was on a committee. The, the hospital asked, uh, asked a group of us to, uh, to decrease the cost of colon surgery. And we said, well, what does that mean? I mean, do you want to I mean, we can decrease the cost of of colon surgery by decreasing the number of patients who have colon surgery. I mean, is that what you? Want? No, that's not what we want. So we said, well, we can we can help you decrease the cost if we know what your costs are. And they said, when we gave them a list of things that that would contribute to the cost, and we said we we can modify or change some of those if we know. Uh, which ones you lose money on, or which ones you make money on? We can, you know, and they said, "Well, we we don't really know the cost. They didn't have a. Uh, there was no accounting system for it. So that makes making business decisions really difficult. And much of the thrust in in hospitals over the last fifteen twenty years, as far as I can see, is the, is to try to use the computer power that's now available to get a better handle on what what their actual costs are. Yeah, it, it sounds frustrating not to be able to have that information. Uh, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I mean any reasonable business would would you know throw up its hands with the thought of how to do that. Right. I remember you saying over time that that nurses often ran the hospital uh was there a way to incorporate the nurse's perspective or information in order to help uh, affect change? Well, I think you have to. I mean, there's such an integral part of, of the, uh, the way things work that, um, that you have to integrate it and you have to learn from, from it. And they often have, uh, have good ideas about how to make things work better and work uh, more smoothly. So I, I don't think I've ever been on any committee in the hospital that didn't have nurses on it as a, you know, needing their input. Um, well, this has been a fascinating conversation for me, and I feel like we have just sort of touched the, the tip of the, the iceberg here, but uh, hopefully maybe we can continue this conversation another time as um, and we can dig into some other specific topics, but I, I wanted to say thank you for doing this. And uh, Well, thank you for, for, for stimulating me to think about this. <laughs> well, great. <laughs> Thanks again. 